1: That's MOWI, M-O-W-I, Salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife, or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet, made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping, as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Nathan Mirvold is a scientist, a chef, also co-author of the James Beard award-winning Modernist Cuisine, as well as his latest work, Modernist Bread, which explores the science behind bread baking. So we went out in the parking lot with a bucket and a pressure washer, and I don't recommend
2: this as a practical way of making bread because you make one hell of a mess. But if you pressure wash <laughs> your flour stomach. in a bucket, it mixes instantly.
1: Before we get to Nathan, Robin Eckhart, author of the cookbook Istanbul and Beyond, offers us a Tuesday night supper. Robin, how are you? Good. Um, you obviously know a great deal about turkey and the food of turkey and the cooking of turkey. How's that informed your approach to cooking at home on a Tuesday night? Are there things that just naturally transition nicely to the United States?
3: Uh, I think a couple techniques do, which is that um, Turkish cooks generally don't brown meats before they go into right. a stew. And that you know really takes a step away. Uh, another thing that might transition nicely is uh, the, the technique of layering ingredients in a pot and just sticking it in the oven and just leaving it there called güveç. Güveç is a clay pot and it's The word also describes this technique of layering ingredients. So you've got maybe some cubed meat, and then you put over some pieces of eggplant, some maybe bell pepper, and then cover that with a layer of chopped tomatoes. Uh, You've probably thrown some seasonings in there, maybe tossed it with the meat. And then you just stick it in the oven at a very high heat. I use a high heat to duplicate the wood-fired oven. And you just leave it. You don't touch it. You don't stir it. You just leave it, and the tomatoes will reduce to a sauce. At the end, you pull it out, you stir it, and it's ready
1: to eat. The original slow cooker. Okay.
3: Exactly. Uh, it's really convenient. And also using tomato paste, not as uh, we Americans often think of it as a way to thicken a sauce, but using it as a flavor base. So you can make a soup— uh, and the flavor base can be some very nicely sautéed onions and spices, tomato paste added, cooked uh, to get it nice and um, sort of thick and, uh, and intensely flavored. Put some ingredients, um, maybe vegetables, maybe a, f- a few meatballs, water, and boil it, and you've got a soup.
1: I'm coming over to your house. <laughs> when the, when the <laughs> doorbell rings, it's me. Robin, uh, thank you so much.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: That was Robin Eckhart, author of Istanbul and Beyond. Military Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, and listen anytime. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, also on Spotify. Right now, my charming co-host, Sarah Moulton, and I will take some of your calls. Sarah, of course, is the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you?
4: Chris, I'm great, and I'm ready to go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line?
5: Hi, this is uh, Simon.
4: Hi, Simon. How can we help you?
5: Uh, my question is about making stock, primarily uh, chicken stock from chicken bone scraps. Uh, so in the past, I would roast a pile of uh, wings then cook them in water and some aromatics and perhaps a slow cooker. Now, I've uh, accumulated a big pile of chicken bones from the thigh and the backbone, you know, carved up from raw bones mostly, uh, in my freezer ready to make stock in my Instant Pot. So my question is, are bones from a roasted or braised or barbecue chicken still suitable for making stock, or are they sort of spent at that point? And if yes, is it still okay to essentially roast them a second time, or should you only roast raw bones?
4: Well, they're absolutely usable. I save all my bones from all my cooked chicken and throw them in the freezer, just like you did. But you don't have to re-roast them. They've already been roasted once. Okay. The French do this all the time. As a matter of fact, there's a term for it. It's, it's R-E-M-O-U-I-L-L A-G-E. And That sounds Dutch.
3: That <laughs> <It> doesn't <laughs> sound French. <laughs>
4: Well, but you know how frugal the French are. Yes, sure, Well, at any rate, Chris, wouldn't you agree?
1: Well, if you go back to the beginning of time with making stock, <laughs> like when I was young, no, I mean, they'd have a back burner on their coal stove, and they'd just throw any scraps they had. They'd actually put in water they used to even boil cabbage. They'd throw everything in. Huh. I mean, they'd put virtually anything in that pot because they would turn it into stock over 10 hours. Sounds good. If you have a
4: large enough freezer, this is a great way to repurpose them.
5: You know, in terms of um, maybe augmenting those with some, you know, sometimes I have access to maybe chicken feet or neck bones, you know, something to get more gelatin flavor. Is there any kind of piece that you would avoid in this instance? Or it sounds like it's all kosher. No, just
4: the liver. Don't throw it. Julia used to say, save the liver. You know, uh, because, uh, you know, cook it up separately. I think the French
1: would put roadkill in their stock. They'd use everything. <laughs> they do use everything. Yeah. No,
4: I don't think there's anything. If you get the whole wing and you want to eat the other two joints, just cut off the wingtips and save those in the freezer because those are yes.
1: good. Well, okay. can I just add, as I always do, you could take a whole chicken, throw in a bunch of water with some ginger, whatever, 25 minutes at a simmer, flip it over halfway through, take it off the heat, put the top on, let it sit 40 minutes. Now you have a perfectly cooked chicken, and you have two quarts of stock.
5: And then you have stock remaining.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's... a
5: kind of two birds and one stone. Got it.
1: You know, I now cook with water a lot, because if you cook meat and water, you get stock. So... And Sarah's, you know, about to throw her tea No, no, me,
4: no, right? no. You know, it's funny. When I went to cooking school, I thought water was a useless ingredient. It's, it's a great ingredient. It's fantastic. I've come to embrace <laughs> yeah. it. So, good for you. Yes. No, that's one of
1: the things that's happened. Anyway, so that's fine. Keep Roasted up the good bones, work. Put them yeah. in the stockpot. Yes. Thanks. All right. Much appreciated. Take care. Welcome to Mill Street Radio. Who's calling?
6: Hi, this is Ed Lamb.
1: Hi, Ed Lamb. How are you?
6: Good. My question is about using a countertop pressure cooker. Uh-huh. I have a lot of books that has like, braising recipes and soup recipes, and I was just wondering, is the time the only difference, or do I have to do other things to the recipe to make it work for a pressure cooker?
1: Do you have a pressure cooker, or an instapot, or what do you have? Let's start with that.
6: Yes, an instapot.
1: There are two categories. There are things that are actually better cooked in a pressure cooker, like beans. Not only is it fast, but they actually cook up better. There are things like chicken stock you can make fairly quickly, which also extract flavor better. So that's one category. Then there are other recipes like ribs and short ribs and other things which are just faster.
4: Somebody told me risotto is really good in a pressure cooker. Yeah, someone
1: told me that too. Uh, But beans, I think, would be one of the top of the pyramid for me in terms of things that are great. I once made a cheesecake in a pressure cooker. which What? (laughs) I couldn't get it out. Well, okay. But yes, you would want to adjust the recipes. You can't just take a recipe – and put it in a pressure cooker, you'd have to adjust the amount of liquid, for example, and other things, right? Yeah, I mean, they would, absolutely. It would be quite different. Yeah. But I would start with the basics because some of the basic things it does really well.
6: Okay. So is liquid the main consideration and it's just supposed to cut down time for
1: everything else? It cuts down time. Obviously, it gets to a higher pressure. The amount of liquid you use is crucial. The amount of contents in total is crucial. And I think the seasonings also in a pressure cooker might be a little bit different as well. Than in a slow cooker. Than in a slow cooker. Yeah, they are. A slow cooker tends to make things watery. Yes. Which is problematic. So a pressure cooker would work very differently.
6: So would I have to put less seasoning to get it to taste right, or do I have to play around? Because I I like to taste as I go.
4: Well, you're not going to be able to do that in a pressure cooker, unfortunately.
6: Yeah, exactly. That's my biggest hesitation to using a pressure cooker.
4: Didn't the Instapot come with a cookbook?
6: It came with a guide, but not really a cookbook that I can remember.
4: You would have to up the seasoning, probably, if you took a recipe from a slow cooker and tried to do it in a pressure cooker. But I couldn't tell you the exact amounts. I'm afraid what you're going to have to do is just
1: experiment. There are two things. You have to decide how you're going to use it. Are you going to use this as a cooking tool You know, to take a pot roast, for example, and cook it in 45 minutes, or to take ribs and cook them quickly, or to cook beans? Is it a basic tool for cooking foods, or is it a tool for actually cooking full recipes that you want? And so I think you have to make that decision. If you want full recipes, you're going to have to go get a cookbook or go online to find a source of recipes that you really like. You can't adapt easily. It's just going to be very difficult to do. I would get a cookbook. I agree with Chris. Who did the book, was it Under Pressure? Cooking Under Pressure. Cooking Under Pressure. Who was that? It might did that? have been Laura Shapiro. Anyway, no, cooking, Lorna Sass. Lorna Sass, Lorna Cooking Sass. Under Pressure. That was one of the first pressure cooker books. And you might see if she's done an updated one since then.
6: Okay, thank you. I appreciate yeah. all the okay. advice. Man. You're and, uh, welcome. I'm a really big fan of the show. Thanks. Thanks, Ed. All right, bye.
1: This is Moster Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have any questions at all, cooking, marriage, weather, or gardening, give us a call at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email. We'd love to hear from you at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
4: Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the phone?
3: Joanne Shea.
4: How can we help you?
3: My question is, we were in Rome in August having lunch in a restaurant that specializes in Jewish cuisine, and we ordered the Roman artichokes and the Jewish artichokes. And the Roman artichokes were sort of typical, what you would have that marinated. But the Jewish artichokes were served whole, and they were really crispy, and you could eat the whole thing. You know, they didn't taste fried. There was no breading on them. So I was just wondering, like, how they were prepared, because they were so delicious. And I would love to be able to make them myself.
4: Sometimes I think they're uh, pre-steamed, so they're basically cooked, and then the frying part is just the re-crisping part. Did they leave the stem on, peel down the stem?
3: No, the stem wasn't
4: there. Wasn't there, because you know that stem is every bit as good as the artichoke. You just have to peel down to the light green part. But anyway, what I would do actually steam them, not boil them, because when you boil artichokes, they get watery. Steaming them mm-hmm. is a good way to go. So I would um, clip off the leaves, cut off the top, Till you get down to, you know, like two inches from the base, from the heart. Uh And then cut it in half, scoop out the choke with a melon baller, just that furry part that's, you know, Uh a little bit inedible. And then steam them, you know, over water until, you know, a knife just goes through a little bit. You know, not completely, but nicely. And then um, take a large skillet with about an inch of oil and um, pat those artichokes very, very dry and then... Go ahead and fry them up till they look good.
3: So you would put it kind of top down in the oil?
4: You would just keep turning it. Oh, And I'd say about 375 temp for the oil, yeah. Do be careful deep frying, as you know. You don't want the oil to get above 400. You want to keep it at 375 if you can.
7: Okay.
4: I think you'll be perfectly fine as long as you monitor the temperature and try to find the smaller ones.
1: Joanne, give that a shot. Yes. Let us know. Yes. All right. Well, All right. thank you so thank you. much. Yes.
3: And I'm um, looking forward to trying. Okay.
1: okay. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimmel. Coming up next, my conversation with Nathan Mirvold, scientist and author of Modernist Bread. After the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, And now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street.
8: Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine, since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do.
4: My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops
7: over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel.
5: My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite
4: ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this, like, big pork shoulder with, like, salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house. And a little, like, scallion ginger sauce. It's, like, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection.
6: My other top
2: choice was, like, a hot dog. Like, just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about
4: muscles with beer, especially the white, that is just so
6: good.
8: I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile.
3: I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice.
2: Pairing allagash white with carrot cake is
9: a thing of beauty.
8: This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice, warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just...
3: Like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer.
8: It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White.
5: <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook. I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew,
6: I'll add a little bit of Allegash White to it.
4: A lot of people use Allegash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime.
1: That could be the beer.
4: We are very food minded here at Allegash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allegash White is
9: Yeah, that's really good. This is
8: Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you.
7: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
1: This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. You know, I met Nathan Mirvold a few years ago at the Modernist Laboratory outside of Seattle. Of course, he's the former chief technology officer of Microsoft and now a cookbook author, including Modernist Cuisine and Modernist Bread. Mirvold had his chefs cook me a 12-course lunch using technology to make better french fries, better scrambled eggs, amazing gelato, and also pastrami. I was anxious to find out how he would apply science to the baking of bread. Nathan, how are you? I'm doing great. Um, let's go back two or three years when I visited your offices. And uh, and I sat in the lobby, as many people have, and there was a large digital screen with little red dots going off. And I asked the person who was there what that was, and I was informed it was a laser-guided mosquito zapper. So was that for real,
2: that thing? It was for real, and in fact, uh, this month, it's being tested by the Department of Agriculture and really? then the U.S. Navy.
1: Now, is it true? I was It was told that this device can tell the difference between a female and male mosquito by the number of beats per second of their wings. It's true. <laughs> I <true. In> <laughs> love that. Th- this is how mosquitoes tell boy from girl.
2: Uh, they have a different wing beat frequency, And if you really are in an area where you're killing a lot of them, the females are the only ones that bite.
1: I love love it that there's somebody spending years figuring out the frequency of Mm -hmm. the wings between a female and a male mosquito. So when I was there and you served me a wonderful lunch, I still remember the pistachio gelato made from pistachio oil at 25 dollars per serving, but it was really good. Uh, a couple things just I, I'd like you to explain to people. The French fries with the sound waves, how, how did that work? Well, we wanted to make a really crispy
2: French fry that would also stay crispy for a long time. Uh, we tried lots of different traditional methods, lots of different newfangled methods, and the best we found was to pre-cook the pr- French fry, then seal it up in a um, in a bag with a slurry of potato starch and put that whole thing into an ultrasonic bath. That's used to clean uh, jewelry, contact lenses. And what that does is it roughens up the surface of the potato. Uh, It also tends to get the, the starch from the slurry stuck in there. And that makes a french fry that is both crispier to begin with and then it stays crispy for
1: longer. And and then one other issue from lunch, the centrifuge. You you take frozen peas, you put them in the centrifuge, there's uh, butter in the center, there's sort of a broth on top, and there's sort of uh, starch at the bottom. You use the centrifuge for a lot of things in modernist, right? Yep. So anybody who's made
2: French, squeezed orange juice and put it in the fridge knows the next day all the pulp's down at the bottom. That's because it's denser than the rest, and so it settles out. Well, a centrifuge is a machine where you put liquid into it, and it spins it very, very fast. So it can create a force equal to 40,000 times, or even more, uh, Earth's normal gravity. So that separation occurs even for things that wouldn't normally separate out in the fridge, like pureed peas. And as you say, we wound up having a starchy layer. Then there's a thin layer that we call pea butter, but it has no fat in it, hmm. and it's all the flavor molecules in the peas. Uh, we call it pea butter because it has a the texture of soft melted butter. It feels like it's fat in your mouth, but it isn't. And then on top is a clear green pea broth. And the reason this is a cool thing to do is that the starch in peas doesn't really taste like anything. And that gets in the way of us thinking of a garden pea as an intensely flavored vegetable. It's got intense flavor. It's just dulled by all the starch that's in there. When you take that out, you have both that um pea butter puree and the broth that at least I think are delicious. You had it. No, best. it was
1: it was delicious. Now I remember I came away from that lunch exhilarated and then thinking. Gee, you know, I I wish I had millions of dollars of toys so I could play with food like like Nathan <laughs> Mirvold. Uh, and, and I I came away actually with a positive result. But the New York Times I think summed it up really well, and I'm sure you remember the quote. A common critique of Mirvold's food is that it's pedantic and soulless. His recipes can be so scientific they can seem self defeating. Yet, when Mirvold employs a centrifuge, for example, to wear the essence of peas or carrots for his dishes, the results are straightforward and remarkably powerful and that's sort of where I came out is what the ends justify the means mm-hmm. uh the food really was good and it was memorable and uh, you know how you got there is well okay it's it's not appropriate for the everyday kitchen but that wasn't your point that's right yeah
2: and, and of course a lot of the things that we developed uh, in both that book and my my more recent book are practical for anyone at home some aren't but that's always been true the the very best chefs have great equipment and tremendous skill. And a little bit of six of one, half a dozen of the other of what makes it more unapproachable, the machine or the 40 years of
1: skill. <laughs> right. Well, there is that. That's true. So let's, let's move on to bread. I've, I've got a bunch of questions for you. But you came into this project with certain assumptions about bread. Is it, let's talk about hydration level. I mean, this is one of the things everyone throws around, 60 percent, 70 percent, 80 percent. It's a measurement of the water in relationship to the the dry ingredients in bread. Did you discover something? I mean, what does higher hydration, let's say 80%, do for you versus, let's say, a low hydration like 60%?
2: So when you have high hydration, more water in the dough, you get much larger bubbles and a more irregular crumb and a more elastic crumb. So of course crumb is what a baker calls all of the interior of the bread, not just the little pieces that fall on the floor when you cut it. That whole thing is the crumb. So that's one thing you get. Now there's a second thing you get high hydration, which is you get a dough that's sticky and wet and uh, is a little bit like the blob. It's not really a dough and it's not really a batter. It's some quivering thing in between. So it becomes actually kind of hard to deal with.
1: Um, This is a question that's come up over the years. I never could quite answer We talk about developing gluten in pie pastry. It's a bad thing. makes it tough. You know, if you're not dealing with a yeast bread, gluten formation is something to avoid because it makes baked goods tough. When you get to bread, you want to develop gluten because it makes an airier, lighter bread. That's right. Could you – (laughs) okay. That's like the (laughs) Holy Ghost or something. I don't quite get it.
2: So um, gluten is a very elastic combination of a couple of the proteins – that are in wheat in the presence of water. And gluten has two great properties for bread making. One is it's very elastic and stretchy. That's what makes things bread chewy uh, and in pie crusts or cakes or muffins can make them tough. Now it's also gas impervious. That's important because the yeast is producing carbon dioxide gas and the dough traps it in effectively little bubbles, and those bubbles are like a balloon where the rubber is the gluten.
1: So it's like an angel food cake and that the bubbles are created when you whip the egg whites and you get lift and you get lightness. That's exactly right. An imperfect right. analogy, but analogy. Okay. No,
2: it's, it's a very good analogy actually. So uh, whenever you have a foam, uh, which angel food cake is a good right. example, the foam has got to have some elastic gas impermeable stuff. I mean, the, the simplest example are soap suds, where it's soap in the water that, that at least temporarily makes those bubbles. Then when, when you bake the bread, those bubbles stiffen up because the starch in them cooks. And it's actually the starch that makes bread stiff and, and support its own weight. Um, as you know, with a souffle... It doesn't always support its own weight unless you put some starch into it, and so when you take it out of the oven, the whole thing can collapse and suck down on itself.
1: Um, if if you do no need that is, you let water and flour sit and the with the glutenin and the gliadin or whatever the proteins are in the flour mix together. How long would that take you for that to develop enough gluten? So it depends on
2: how you do the mixing. Most no need recipes would say you. Mix it to the shaggy mass stage, <laughs> um, which is not a bad description. No,
1: that's one of the better culinary descriptions, right? Uh,
2: and then they, they want you to let it sit for typically six to eight hours. However, if you put it into a sous vide bag with water and you suck a vacuum, it's done instantly.
1: What? Yes. Now and you're, you're not heating
2: it, you're just not creating a your vacuum. It. You're just the vacuum helps suck the water into the flour. Really? Um, then we found a German company called Rapido Jet that uses ultra high pressure water to do instant mixing. This is for industrial baking. Huh. So I thought, well, huh, that's interesting. So we went out in the parking lot with a bucket and a pressure washer. And I don't recommend this as a practical way of making bread because you make one hell of a mess. But if you pressure wash <laughs> flour your in a bucket, it mixes instantly. Except for the flour that, like, flies up all over you.
1: Department of interesting but completely useless culinary techniques. Um, how do you make a starter on your own? This wild yeast spores and use grapes or use fruit or use something else. I mean, does that really work? And, and how do you optimize the chances of it working properly? So there's
2: lots of recipes that put what I would call weird stuff into your sourdough. Uh, grapes or raisins or dried apricots with the theory that there's wild yeast on them. Some recipes put in yogurt or some other fermented dairy product in the theory there's lactobacillus. And all these struck me as quite misguided because what your sourdough culture needs to eat is flour. And after getting it going, you're going to feed it flour. So if you feed it with these other things, it's counterproductive. So we did a test where we had one of these combinations of raisins and water and so forth. So we made that sourdough. Then we made another one that was the same ingredients, pressure-cooked. So they mm. were totally sterile. And then we had a third one that's flour and water. Well, the one that was pressure-cooked took off way more. What? Than, yep. But then huh. it died down and the flour and water came up. And the reason is the... Sugar in the raisins was made more available by pressure cooking them. So they sort of dissolved more. And sugar will give a lot of activity, but it's like the tortoise and the hare. That's not the activity you want. You want the things that are going to eat flour because that's what you're going to feed your starter from here on out. So our
1: recommendation is flour and water and let it sit for a few days. Okay. You're an interesting guy to say the least. I looked up. your bachelor's degree of mathematics, master's degree in geophysics and space physics from UCLA, Princeton, another's master's degree in mathematical economics, a Ph.D. in theoretical and mathematical physics. Whew. So let's, let's expand the discussion. Everyone's talking about technology either solving the world's problems or if you listen to TED Talks, destroying us all through robotics. Um, one or the other. Are there, are there one or two things that you think technology actually could do in the next 50 years that would be substantial? Oh, absolutely. Technology,
2: I mean, is literally it's a tool. And the interesting trend of most modern technologies, by modern I mean in the last 20 years, is that they're very democratized and very empowering. Uh, we all have cell phones. It's not, oh, the elite has cell phones and the rest of us don't. We have democratized information, the creation of information, the distribution enormously. I think that trend will continue. We will have robots in our lives. Of course, we've actually had robots in our lives at one level or another for a really long time. The notion that we're all suddenly going to be put out of work by robots I think is – unrealistic. I don't, just don't think that's in the cards. But then you look at biotech. Actually, my son is a postdoc at the Broad Institute and works on the CRISPR gene editing technique. What, and, what is that? Uh, it, it's a technique that was just discovered a couple of years ago that allows scientists to manipulate DNA in ways they just never were able to do before. And there's some very exciting possibilities in both basic science for understanding our world, but also in medicine. I mean, I always tell him, you know, just keep working harder because I'm not getting any younger (laughs) and
1: I'm going to need this before you do. (laughs) Yeah. Well, other people have said that in prior generations, I've got to give it up. Um, But the argument is on the TED Talks and other places that technology, artificial intelligence will take over a significant percentage of the current uh, jobs in, in, in the world or in America, because you can uh, take a patient and do a much better job with artificial intelligence in terms of figuring out what's wrong with that patient than just one individual with sort of limited access to a database. Does that make any sense to you, or is that just ridiculous? Well, if you
2: take that specific example, look, we're in a world where there is not as good uh, access to healthcare as there should be. Probably you and I get regular checkups. Most Americans don't, and they ought to. And the cost of health care is this giant issue for society. When you go outside the U.S., it gets even worse. We do a lot of work on the developing world, and in sub-Saharan Africa, there's, you know, like a thousandth as many doctors per population as there would be in the U.S. So to the degree you could get a certain level of diagnostic screening done cheaply. I think that's a good thing. And that won't put doctors out of work. What it'll do is it'll have doctors treating patients that today go undiagnosed and then have a more Mm. serious condition or die because of it. This is an idea that's very old. People have worried about machines taking their jobs long before they worried about smart machines taking their job. Now, the idea that AI takes over everything has got two issues to it. The first is, it it takes a long time for any technology to penetrate to a large fraction of of anything, number one. And number two, AI still doesn't work as well as we would like it to. There's plenty of problems that are still
1: quite impossible for it. Okay, now for the big question. Is someone going to figure out the unifying theory of the universe? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I mean, you have Einstein on one, and then you, you have quantum theory on the other, and he never really bought into quantum mechanics, et cetera. Do you think all these incredibly complex string theory and this and that and the other thing will eventually come down to something that's just zeros and ones or something very elegant?
2: Well, this used to be what I did. Um, I was a postdoc after graduate school with Stephen Hawking, and I worked on quantum theories of space and time. I wound up kind of by accident leaving physics and in the time since then lots of theories have been created but none of them have worked <laughs> um but that's progress now i'm an optimist where i think hey if we keep at it we're going to get either some new clue from experiments or we're going to get someone like einstein you know it's a uh, little over 100 years ago that einstein came up with his general theory of relativity which is I think one of the most striking intellectual achievements of mankind because he came up with it without having some advanced technology showing him this theory. It was him thinking about a guy inside an elevator being lifted up and what he thought the, the universe was. And so he thought these deep thoughts and somehow came up with this. So we have to wait for Einstein or we have to get a new clue. And I don't know which it's going to be.
1: Uh, Nathan Mirvold, thank you. Uh, Waiting for Einstein, too. (laughs) Maybe that's the cover of your new book. Thank you so much. The the, the bread book is just fabulous. Thank you. That was Nathan Mirvold, scientist, chef, and co-author of Modernist Cuisine, also author of Modernist Bread. You know, Nathan Mirvold is one very smart guy. We can argue all day about technology and cooking, whether cooking is more about science than art. But curiosity in any field is a rare gift. Mirvold always wants to know why. He doesn't care whether kneading bread is a tradition. He just wants to understand what it really does. And for that, I salute Nathan as a disruptor, someone who looks at facts, not tradition. You know, I love tradition more than anyone, but I also love people who ask why. As questions go, it is actually one of the best Right now I'm heading over to the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark for this week's recipe. Hi, Lynn. How are you? I'm great, Chris. Mashed potatoes. Let's just talk mashed potatoes. You know, I've given up at this point. I just boil some potatoes and I mash them, oddly enough. And I throw in some butter and milk or cream, whatever I have, and some salt. And I don't even measure anymore. But this year uh, we came up with something that really is quite different than anything I've done before. uh, And it comes from a different country.
0: That's right, Chris. So while this recipe starts like a typical mashed potato recipe, it doesn't end that way. We borrowed a technique from Indian cooking called tarka, which loosely translates to tempering. And they use this technique to finish dishes to add an extra layer of flavor. What you do is add whole spices to hot oil, butter, ghee, typically in Indian cooking. Um, And what that does is the, the hot fat really extracts the flavor of those whole spices. So for our recipe, we used four tablespoons of butter, a tablespoon of lightly crushed caraway seeds, and a tablespoon of ground mustard seeds. We heat that over a lower heat, uh, let the butter get brown even, and that really drew out the flavor of the caraway seeds and the mustard seeds. Those get strained out so that you don't end up with those bits in your mashed potatoes. And we pour this over a typical mashed potato recipe. It starts with Yukon Goals, which we love for their buttery flavor, mixed with melted butter and half and half. Um, and then just drizzle it over after you put it into your serving dish, top it with two tablespoons of minced chives.
1: So there's there's one final flavor I don't think you've mentioned.
0: There is, it's horseradish. And in this recipe we're using prepared horseradish, which is the kind that comes in the jar. You wanna drain it before you add it to the potatoes, but don't discard the liquid. We use three tablespoons of that vinegary liquid in the potatoes, which gives it a nice sweet heat.
1: So we have new mashed potatoes, influenced by the cuisine of India, We have caraway, we have yellow mustard seed, and we have a little horseradish to finish. Thank you, Lynn.
0: You're welcome. You can find our recipe for mashed potatoes with caraway mustard butter at 177milkstreet.com.
1: I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, after the break.
9: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
3: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to hear from our listeners uh, with my co-host Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go?
4: I am ready to take those questions.
1: Welcome to Mill Street Radio. Who's calling? Hi, this
6: is Rich Stockton from Salt Lake City.
1: How are you? i uh, doing well. How are you? I'm good. How can I help you?
6: My wife and I are going to France this fall. Yay! Yeah, it's fun. We're excited. And so I was wondering if you have any direction or uh, places we should eat while
1: we're in Paris. Sure. I think the most authentic prison place I've ever been to is Le Severo, S-E-V-E-R-O. It's near Montparnasse. It's kind of out of the way. It's a little tiny steak-free place. You can choose which cut you want. They have eight or nine cuts. Uh, They'll have one or two apps, you know, asparagus, uh, fresh mushrooms in May or June, wine list on the blackboard, and maybe one or two desserts. There's the owner who does the front of the house. There's a chef who's right there, 10 feet away from you, and it's fabulous. It's inexpensive, very few tourists, and if you don't clean your plate, the chef will come out and strangle you. <laughs> but besides that, it's good. In the 6th, sank mars the 5th of March, sank mars M-A-R-S. It's a new-style bistro, very simple menu, really, really excellent food. Another classic uh, bistro, Chez Georges. It's in the 2nd or 3rd. It's been there a long time. The waitresses and waiters have been there a long time. It's, it's a classic French bistro for lunch. Highly recommend that. And also for lunch, Rose Bakery. This is run by an Englishwoman, actually, and she has two of them. One's in the Marais district. It's a narrow little place, soups, uh, vegetable plates, delicious pastries for dessert, very simple and light. But now I'm sitting across from no, I have, my co-host.
4: No, no, I have not been to Paris in a couple of years, so I'm just not up with the latest. Um, my experience in the past has been don't go to the heavily starred places. I agree. Just go to the little bistros in the little neighborhood and see if the locals are there.
1: There's also, it's interesting, in the last five years, a lot of American chefs and English chefs have opened places.
4: I'm amazed uh, that the French have right. embraced these American and, uh, there's chefs. An,
1: there's an English guy who's got two restaurants, I think in the sixth, very close to each other. You could look it up. But he's been there seven or eight years now, and his food's great. And mm-hmm. so One of them, spring? Yes, one of them, spring. Lucevra would be my first choice for real French experience, Parisian experiences. Oh, you're going to have so much terrific. fun.
4: Well, have a wonderful trip. Have a wonderful trip. time. Yes.
6: Well, thank you so much. Yeah. I really appreciate the help. And sure. The direction.
1: Yeah, try them out. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Bye. Ah, uh, Paris. Welcome to Wall Street Radio. Who's calling?
7: Hi, this is Leah. I'm calling from Woburn, Massachusetts.
1: So how can we help you?
7: I have a question about making jam. I had a whole bunch of strawberries earlier in the summer and I made this batch of jam and I didn't have any pectin so I looked for a no pectin recipe and it came out unbelievably sweet and I didn't want to monkey with the ratio of the sugar because I thought it might have to do with how it set up considering it had no pectin in it but now I have all this strawberry jam it's way too sweet for me my kids like it I guess I'm wondering what is the right ratio and Will that affect how it sets up? But also, what do you do with a whole bunch of way-too-sweet strawberry jam?
1: Well, I used to make a lot of jam and strawberry jam because we grew a lot of strawberries and raspberries. Older recipes, even with pectin, call for much too much sugar. I mean, they're just really inedible. And so I found I I could cut the sugar way back, and it would still set up. The other thing I found is that I made refrigerator jams with a lot less Uh sugar, and Refrigerator, those,
4: you meaning you always keep them yeah, in the fridge. Yeah, keep them
1: in the fridge, and they'll last quite a long time that way. And then I could really reduce the sugar. But if you didn't use any uh. pectin in the recipe, I assume that recipe called for an excessive amount of sugar because the sugar is yeah, there to help set it. So now the question is, what do you do? And I suppose you can take a little bit of that and mix it with fresh strawberries in a mixer of some a food processor or something and, and create something where there's a little bit of balance and some lemon juice. There there is one thing I did learn. This is interesting. I learned recently that sugar balances heat like chilies. So I just made a chili dish recently where it was just a little too spicy. I added sugar to it a little more and it wasn't nearly as spicy. So it's one of those things you could add to something if it was spicy to cut back on the spiciness. I'm not sure what that would be. Well, what do you know, add <laughs> strawberry jam to? Hey, I made this uh, wonderful chili. And you added <laughs> some strawberry jam. I Nevada and I just added some <laughs> strawberry jam to it.
4: I was going to say also you could add some vinegar to it. Oh. Or some acid orange juice. Lemon juice. Lemon yeah. juice. But even vinegar would be sort of interesting and put it over ice cream. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, just balance it and out with acid. That's the other I, thing that balances know,
1: sugar is acid. Here's what you should do. It makes a great gift.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Wrap it in a <laughs> bow tie. Say, oh, she makes a horrible jam. It's too sweet. No well, at least I you just get want to ruin her
1: reputation. Get rid of it. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, how many jars do you have? Let's start with that.
7: Well, I mean, it's something like six jars. Oh, so it's not okay. outrageous. I think it would make you know. We
4: have a family recipe that goes on for days. That's called raspberry vinegar. And it's not vinegar. It's a raspberry sauce. It's very sweet. Oh, really? But it's beautifully, beautifully balanced. Hmm. You know, you ferment, you add sugar, and you let the raspberry sit, and then you add more sugar, and then you weigh it again. And you add vinegar and blah, blah, blah. But at the end, it tastes like essence of raspberries. And so mm-hmm. I think in our recipe, we use distilled white vinegar, actually. Hmm. So you might want to—really, I'm not kidding. I don't think it will ever be the jam you want it to be, but you could certainly turn it into a sauce.
7: Okay, so, that would so be... I would just look for, like, strawberry vinegar or something like that? No, not
4: strawberry vinegar. Just add white vinegar to it. Take oh, your jam, okay. add some vinegar, melt it down, and I think you've got a sauce.
7: Okay. Yeah. Sounds like fun. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for
4: Thank calling. Thank you so much. All Take right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
1: This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at Milk Street Radio. Dot com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
6: Tim from Kansas City.
1: Is this a barbecue question or something else?
6: <laughs> well, I've got a question <laughs> about horseradish, actually. Okay. I like to put horseradish on broth and other grilled items. I like the flavor of horseradish. The problem is it usually dominates whatever I put it on, and I don't get a lot of other flavors. And I was questioning, how can I make horseradish a little tamer?
1: Well... For starters, if you grate fresh horseradish and let it sit, it loses flavor pretty quickly. It
4: loses, as a matter of fact, it becomes yeah. downright boring. Yeah,
1: after a couple hours, mm. an hour. Matter of fact, I did that. I made some boiled beef a month or two ago, and you finish it with grated horseradish, and I grated it. That afternoon.
4: And let it sit.
1: And at 7 or 8 o'clock at night, I couldn't taste the horseradish.
4: No, it, it just gets so... I mean, right away, you're absolutely yeah. right. If you grate it fresh, say, onto oysters or something, you could barely taste the oyster for the horseradish.
1: Well, you can make a horseradish cream, essentially, with some vinegar, etc. The
4: best thing to do is to arrest that flavor and tame it at the same time by adding salt and vinegar. Right. So you grate it first and then add salt and vinegar. And uh, it should be of the heat that you want. Or, you know, at least not overwhelming and also not dead as doornails, which it is straight up a couple hours later.
1: Also, I find if you add horseradish to, like, mashed potatoes, which have fat in it, I find fat tends to ameliorate the bite of horseradish.
4: Yeah, I do want to say, because I think fresh horseradish is wonderful, but you have to be careful because it's so intense when you grate it. Right, Tim?
1: Absolutely. You
4: know, if you put it in the food processor and lift off that lid, it's like napalm in your eyes. It's terrible. My suggestion would be to add vinegar and salt.
1: My suggestion is leave it sit around for two or three hours, and then (laughs) then it'll be very, very mild. So there you go. Thanks for calling. Great. Thank you very much. Bye. take care. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is about mamba. We were recently in Montreal in one of the Haitian markets and came across a jar of Mamba. This is peanut butter spiked with scotch bonnet peppers, and it's one of the chilies that are very common in Haiti. It's nutty, it's spicy at the finish, and we really liked it, so we came up with our own recipe. So here's how it works. Take two cups of unsalted dry roasted peanuts, three arbol chilies stemmed and broken in pieces, teaspoon and a half of sweet paprika, half a teaspoon of kosher salt. Process for two to four minutes or until the peanut butter is very smooth. By the way, you'll need to scrape the bowl of the food processor three or four times. The peanut butter should keep for up to a week at room temperature or maybe a month or so if in the fridge. Now, we really love the spicy peanut butter with honey on toast as a dip with apple slices. In fact, we use it in place of store-bought peanut butter in our favorite peanut sauce. Kenji Lopez-Alt is the author of The Food Lab and also chief culinary advisor of Serious Eats. He's here with us today at Milk Street to answer one of the key questions in cooking, which is, Does how you cook meat really affect the end result? Kenji, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Um, So many years ago, I I did a test. We took a roast of beef. I think it was a shoulder roast. We simmered one in water. We roasted one in dry heat in the oven, and then we braised another one in the Dutch oven with a little bit of liquid, cooked them all to the same internal temperature, and uh, the inside of the meat, in all cases, was about the same, same level of juiciness, for example. Mm -hmm. So why does cooking method not really seem to affect the juiciness of a roast? Uh, And everyone thinks, for example, braising, you know, keeps the juices in, et cetera. So why did we get that result?
9: Well, you know, a lot of it has to do with um, the—in fact, it all has to do with the the structure of meat. Um, So, you know, if, say, your meat resembled a sponge— um, where liquid could move freely in and out of it, uh, then you would certainly expect to see a difference if you were cooking it uh, submerged in liquid versus, say, in a dry oven. Um, but that that's not what meat looks like. Really, um, if you take a cross-section of a, of a muscle that you're planning on cooking um, and look at it under a microscope, um, what you'd see is sort of a long series of tubes, you know, liquid-filled tubes. Um, so you can, you can sort of imagine them as like a bundle of uh, tubes of toothpaste, for example, and each one of those Tubes of toothpaste is filled with uh, meat juice. Um, so when you're when you're cooking meat, uh, what happens is the the protein sheaths on the outside of these tubes contract. Uh, the hotter you cook them, the more they contract, and the more juices they end up squeezing out. Um, you know, and and in that sense, it is very much like a tube of toothpaste, where once you sort of squeeze the liquid out, it's very difficult to get it back in. So it doesn't really matter what the cooking medium is, because really all you're doing is taking energy and applying it to that meat. So you know, different cooking. Medium, say water versus air, are efficient in different ways. So, you know, water is much more efficient at transferring heat energy than air is because it's much more dense. And you know this because, you know, if you if you stick your hand into a pot of 212 degrees boiling water, you're going to burn your hand. But you can very easily stick your hand into a oven uh, at 212 degrees. You know, it'll feel hot, but you know, you won't you won't burn yourself. Um, so, so water transfers energy very effectively. But given that you're really only cooking to the exact same internal temperature, you're saying uh, once the meat has absorbed this much. Energy, energy. That's when I'm stopping. So it might cook faster in the water, but as long as you're cooking it to the same internal temperature, um, it's absorbed basically the same amount of energy and therefore basically the same amount of liquid has been squeezed out of it. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of like thinking, um, you know, whether, whether a, a five-year-old child squeezes a tube of toothpaste or Andre the Giant squeezes a tube of toothpaste, um, if you squeeze it all the way out, it's going to be equally dry no matter who is squeezing right. it. It doesn't really matter how strong the person on the outside was.
1: How did you come up with an analogy, a child and a giant? That was pretty (laughs) um, (laughs) – so two more questions. Uh, A lot of people over the years, including Malik Kamen and The Making of a Cook, talk about Mm -hmm. braising and somehow braising and the pressure of the steam and it keeps the juices in, which is not true. Uh, Where where did that whole braising come from in terms of producing juicier meat?
9: So I mean braising typically what you would do with braising um and stewing for example is is not what you did in your experiment. What you did in your experiment is what you was you cooked it to a fixed internal temperature say 130 degrees something right. something in a, at a relatively low you know medium rare something like that um Usually with braising, what you're doing is you're cooking for a very extended period of time. And when you start cooking meat for a long period of time, it's, it's a different form of cooking than simply taking it to a fixed internal temperature. It's much more similar to say barbecue or stewing. So when you braise a tough piece of meat that has a lot of connective tissue, what you're doing is you're breaking down that connective tissue and you're converting it into gelatin. Right. And, and that's a process that takes both energy and it takes time. So these days with, with things like um, sous vide devices, Uh, That hold very precise temperatures for very long periods of time, you know, it is possible to break down connective tissue even at 130 degrees. But with more traditional techniques, you're probably going to be raising the internal temperature of that meat probably to say, you know, 180, 185 degrees and letting it sit there for four to five hours. When you bite into a piece of braised meat, what you're tasting is not steam or not water that has been forced into the meat. The juiciness you're tasting is actually that gelatin that's broken down from the connective tissue. So it's a very different type of moisture.
1: And doesn't that gelatin actually absorb liquid too when it's broken down.
9: Uh, uh, yes, yes, it can absorb and it can help retain liquid as well.
1: So the last question is: I know in Europe, simmering meat in water, you know, pot-au-feu, Tafelspitz mm-hmm. in Austria, is still a tradition, and people and I happen to like meat cooked that way. Mm-hmm. Um, why is do you think that is not something we do here?
9: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think in the U.S. we tend to prefer those highly browned flavors, and we, and we really prize those highly browned flavors. So we have traditions of grilling and, and barbecuing and, and high-heat cooking, things that really produce lots of Maillard browning. But I'm with you. You know, I, I, I think um, boiled meats can be very delicious if if they're done properly. Um, they You know, they tend to have a much more subtle flavor. You get more of the flavor sort of of the broth and the aromatics as opposed to just that sort of brown meat flavor. So
1: the answer is it's all about the internal temperature, and and that's what determines juiciness, not the method of cooking, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Kenji, thank you very much. Thank you. That was J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, author of The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science. Kenji Lopez-Alt and I spoke about different ways to cook meat, and I do have a confession. I am a fan of boiling meat. You end up making your own broth, you cook vegetables in that broth, and the meat is clean and very digestible. It's called pot au feu in France. In Austria, they refer to it as Tafelspitz. It's simple, easy, and delicious. So instead of calling it boiled meat, maybe we should just say Tafelspitz. That's it for this week. If you just tuned in and missed our show, fear not. You can listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our first season of Milk Street Television, and also order our new book, The Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening.
7: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive Producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Associate Producer Carly Helmetag. Senior Audio Engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior Audio Editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio Mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production Help Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.